Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Rupert Reed back once again to the Sustainability Agenda. Rupert is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia, a Green Party campaigner and a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. He's dedicated much of his life to working at local, national and international level in the fight against climate collapse. His most recent book is Parents for a Future, where he argues that loving our children can prevent climate collapse. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. So thank you very much, Rupert, for joining me again today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Good to be here with you, Fergal. So fresh from COP26, um, before we go into that, maybe uh, we've spoken before, but just for people who haven't heard the previous interview, um, if you just maybe just talk a little bit about yourself and your background and what's what, what you do. Sure. So I teach philosophy at the University of East Anglia. I specialize mainly in eco and political philosophy these days. I work alongside some of the world's leading climate scientists. I'm an IPCC uh, expert reviewer and working group too. Uh, I've written various books, including most recently, uh, Parents for a Future, How Loving Our Children Can Prevent Climate Collapse, and co-edited with Jem Bendel, the first book on deep adaptation. I'm a former spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, and I'm now seeking to foment uh, a, a new massive moderate uh, flank to carry the climate movement forward out of the wake of COP26. <laughs> yes, the wake of COP26, that's uh, yeah. what we're going to be discussing. But I suppose just, um, and, and this may well be it, um, I'd like to start off with just to get a little bit of a sense what 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 amongst the myriad uh, concerns and issues and problems, environmental uh, and other, what, what, what is particularly on your mind, Rupert? Well, what a great question. I would say a couple of things. Firstly, I'm very struck, and this obviously is is very relevant to COP, I'm very struck by the extent to which we haven't slowed down extracting new fossil fuels. Uh, This is just as serious with regard to gas as it is with regard to coal. Um, because we've got increasing evidence to believe that gas is carbon-wise often no better than coal because of the fugitive emissions. And you look at what Biden's doing in the States right now, a larger set of oil and gas licenses than any uh, that were um, put up uh, under the Trump presidency. Uh, the, The fossil fuel companies are are sitting pretty, uh, they're hiding behind government commitments to 
to uh, achieve net zero 2050. Uh, they're hiding behind the dangerous push for hydrogen. And basically that aspect of the situation, when one really faces it, it's incredibly grim. People are talking about whether 1.5 is still alive. I've been arguing that it patently isn't. But, you know, forget about 1.5 or even 2. If, if we burn any significant percentage of all these existing and new fossil fuels coming on stream, I still think that the most realistic scenario that we're actually heading for is about 4 degrees of global overheat this century, which will crash up most of our civilizations probably. The other thing which is very much on my mind um, is the state of the oceans. I'm very concerned that that wasn't a bigger theme at COP. I'm very concerned that we as human beings are not very well placed to take maximum care of our oceans, partly because we're not sea creatures, partly because there's just so much of them, partly because they're essentially um, lawless. Uh, and I've been learning stuff about what's going on in our oceans, stuff that other people have been talking about a lot, of course, overfishing, but also other stuff to do with chemical pollution, interactions between chemicals, plankton, uh, pH in the, in the oceans. I think that we're in desperate trouble vis-a-vis -vis the oceans and that even if we were to manage to somehow get our act together uh, on land, uh, drastically reduce fossil fuel um, um, burning, which seems unlikely, uh, drastically increase um, the, uh, the number of trees that there are and, uh, and sequester carbon. Um, even if we did all of that brilliantly, I still think the oceans are quite likely to sink us, basically, to, yeah. to use a metaphor, um, within uh, a generation or two. Um, yeah. So really, the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the situation, as I see it, it's, it's very grim. We can talk in more detail about yes. COP, but really yeah. coming out of COP, uh, my overarching feeling is one of some despair. And um, I had incredibly low expectations, as you may recall, of, of COP. Yeah. But I found myself in a strange situation where even relative to those expectations, I was on balance disappointed. And, and I think that humanity and is in horrendous trouble. And I, I don't see most people accepting or recognizing that fact, which means that the trouble is even more horrendous. Yes, a gr grim portrait there. Uh, Rupert, I, I should ask, um, what, what, what makes you optimistic? There's tremendous momentum, there's the youth movement, mm. there's, there's, uh, there's a lot hop happening and a lot that yeah. you don't get to hear about. Um, what, what, what makes you optimistic? Well, I'm encouraged that some people have been woken up by the catastrophic um, agreement reached at Glasgow. Uh, I think it's, in many ways, a truly wonderful time to be alive it's a time of great significance to be alive and you know as well as asking oneself questions like what's it like to be alive at the moment when humanity seems to be flying off a cliff one should also ask oneself questions like what's it like to be alive at the moment where possibly the most important mass movement there has ever been is continuing to take shape and one has the opportunity to be a part of it so it's things like it's things like that but but right now, in the wake of COP, 
uh, which I've been you know building to for the last couple of years and as I say never expected anything good of COP itself but didn't think it'd be quite as bad as it was and was hoping for a bit more by way of um, revived and awakened uh, consciousness uh, a bit um, I was hoping for a wider um, amount of that yeah. I was I was optimistic that the the media would tell a bit more of the truth of what's going on so the the honest truth is that right now um just having come back from Glasgow I'm not feeling very optimistic I'm feeling really quite quite down and and quite lonely in some regards because there aren't as many of us who are seeing the situation clearly as there should be yeah yeah there, there, there does seem to be uh, um, more voices of disappointment uh, oh, yeah. being articulated and yeah. um, being heard uh, you, you you think it's a failure I mean you, you use words like catastrophic um, why do you think it's a failure what what are a few key disappointments do you think well, in um, the Greens Climate Activist Network, we set out a series of kind of minimum threshold tests that COP had to pass to be judged a sort of minimally decent outcome. Things like actually paying the 100 billion that they promised in 2009. Um, and they didn't really achieve any of them, um, let alone going further than that to do the kind of things that they should really have been doing, like stopping all new fossil fuel uh, exploration. We've already got enough to fry ourselves twice over. Um, so they're just way short of where they needed to be. Um, I was really disappointed with the extent to which people were taking uh, pride in the can being kicked down the road. A lot of people saying, oh, we're in great position now to do something better next year. And it's really good that we're going to get annual targets and so on. But this is all just jam tomorrow, you know, um, in terms of what was actually done now that will have a meaningful impact immediately it was completely minimal and as i say i was discouraged that there's an awful lot of uh, scientists and people in the media and politicians who are not willing to to speak this truth and and until we until that changes you know until there is a, there are a lot more people activists scientists, journalists, politicians, until there's a lot more of these kinds of people who are willing to tell the truth about where we're at and about how awful it's going to be, then it's just going to carry on getting worse. Because the only way we get to actually act adequately on this is if enough people are woken up. And the only way enough people are woken up is if the those who have ownership of the issue are prepared to tell the truth about it, that we are flying off this cliff with greater rapidity, that 1.5 is dead, that the fossil fuel interests are running rampant. Until these kinds of facts are faced, the population is going to go back to sleep again and just carry on being preoccupied with, with you know, minor day-to-day -day issues such as Brexit and MPs improprieties and celebrity gossip and so on. You know, some of these things are, of course, of some importance, but they are they are of negligible importance world historically compared to the the crisis that we are in. And 
you know, coppers already faded from the from the headlines. There hasn't been the kind of consciousness breakthrough that was needed. So, mm. yeah. Mm. You, you, you mentioned that you, you didn't have particularly high expectations. Um, I, I mean, some cop watchers say, really, it's ultimately up to the national governments. And many of the you know, positions that, that uh, emerged at the end had kind of been telegraphed and that, you know, that the cop itself is, you know, it can't, there's limited ability to go beyond what national governments have already, mm. you know, agreed and are, are, are you know, the, the room for, 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 for change there. Sure. Um, I mean, what, 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 what do you think about that? I mean, yeah, of course, it's, it's, it's foolish to pin too much of the blame onto COP itself or onto the UN uh, or onto the UNFCCC. Um, the prime movers are governments, although we shouldn't forget major financial and corporate interests uh, as well. So, yeah, a translation of what I'm saying would also be I'm very disappointed in the um, the Biden administration. I'm very disappointed in uh, the Indian administration. I'm very disappointed in in you know most of the world's governments. Really, there were a certain number of governments um, uh, from some of the small island states, obviously some of the uh, some of the African countries, uh, some of the Caribbean countries, which showed some real. Uh, leadership at the COP. And there were some European countries that showed themselves much better than others. We heard some good things from Switzerland, from Denmark, for example. But most of the world's uh, larger nations, not just the developed uh, nations, but certainly including most of the developed nations, there was a, there was a, a horrible lack of, of leadership. Yes. Um, and, and I am very concerned that we are still in a situation where virtually no politicians at all are willing to really speak truthfully uh, about this. But there's still this widespread pretense that uh, that um, maybe we're uh, going to um, hit and stay within 1.5 uh, degrees. You know, if that was going to happen, this was the last possible chance to put us on track for that. And we absolutely, absolutely are not on track for that. If everything happens exactly the way that all uh, politicians promise, which, of course, is completely non-believable, um, and if we're very lucky, uh, and if there is massive uh, carbon dioxide re removal later in the century, um, then they say we're on track for 1.8. So that's yeah, still not 1.5. Yeah, yeah. um, but actually... Um, we're on track really much more realistically for something like 2.7, 2.8. Um, and actually, I think, as I've said, we'll be very lucky if we get that because you look at what's actually happening with uh, with fossil fuels, um, it's dire. It's yeah. mostly yeah. really quite dire. Yeah. Coal yeah. is not yeah. uh, being um, phased out or even phased down. Yeah. Um, Situation yeah. with gas is is uh, is, is terrible, and, and and then you've got to take into account also, as I said, that um, that there are other aspects here. The situation in the oceans yeah. Um, yeah. is only partly got to do with fossil fuels. Even it's got to do with other stuff as well. It's got to do with chemicals. It's got yeah. to do with overfishing. How are we doing on those things? Well, we're we're nowhere. Yeah, and then there's the whole adaptation agenda, which again yeah. got relatively short shrift. And I'd like to come on to that in a moment. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you about how your thinking has changed, really. Um, but you did say this is the last opportunity. 
What, what, what does that mean? And I, I guess the, the history of the environmental movement, there, there, there have been deadlines and deadlines yes. and deadlines and the last possible, you know. So wh- why do you say it's, it's the last possible opportunity, Rupert? See, what people are always doing is they're always saying that the next line in the sand is the last possible opportunity right. to try to kind of concentrate minds and to yeah. try to make it urgent. And part of my point is it can't always be like that. Sometimes if we miss something, then it's gone. And I think that is the case here. Why? Well, because this was the cop that was supposed to put uh, the Paris Agreement into action. And okay, yeah, and to a tiny extent, it is going to be doing that. And there was progress, of course, on the rule book. And there's progress on the carbon market, although it looks horribly kind of leaky and, and dangerous to me. I think there's going to be all sorts of horror stories coming out about the carbon markets they're creating in the next few years, just like they were in relation to... Kyoto. Um, This was supposed to be the sequel to to Paris. uh, And we waited an extra year. So it made it more important than than usual anyway. And the reason we waited the extra year, of course, was because of the pandemic and the opportunity, you know, any real crisis is an opportunity, the opportunity that the world had to move onto a different path emerging from the pandemic. And that opportunity has mostly been blown over the last year of course some things have improved like there's less commuting and so on but that opportunity has mostly been blown we've mostly missed the chance to move onto a sort of uh, a more um low carbon more local etc future as we yeah, emerge from yeah, yeah, from the pandemic yeah, yeah. and and cop was really a last chance to to change that and to get some more momentum um mm. towards having a, a different world yeah. post-covid yeah. I, I mean, and I it's want... gone now. And now it's 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 happened. It's gone. Boris Johnson said it was one minute to midnight. Okay, so it was one minute to midnight, and then it was midnight, and now it's gone midnight. Yes. it's five past midnight. Yeah. And until people wake up to that, which is shocking and difficult, but until people wake up to that, we're never going to get the kind of movement that we actually need. There's always some kind of sense of, oh, well, COP27 maybe is going to take care of it. And aren't we moving in kind of the right direction and so on? And still people, till people realise it's five past midnight, we've missed cru- crucial chances. They are never coming again. The, the idea that we could realistically now hope for 1.5 is for the birds. Until people realise those things, we're nowhere. Right, right. Now, I do want to talk about adaptation, but I'm just wondering, have you any thoughts about how the COP should evolve? Do you think it's fit fit for purpose? I mean, what changes would you like to see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I think it's fit for purpose? Well, no. Um, I think that one thing which is which they are going to improve on next year, which which could really make a bit of a difference, is to put more of the science up front. It's just so obvious that that should happen. Right. What should happen at the start of a COP is you should have a formal presentation from the scientists, from the IPCC, etc., and from ethicists and precautionary experts and so forth, system thinkers. You should have formal presentations to the leaders and so on. You shouldn't have the, the leaders turn up and just start, you know, making grandstanding uh speeches you should have an actual basis uh in the science and in reality so that's one uh yeah. vital change which they, which they say they're going to move more towards next year I'll, I'll believe it when i see it but that would be very good um more fundamentally of course the rules need to be different there need to be uh sanctions um yeah. just like there was with the montreal 
protocol, all right? There need to be sanctions against nations that don't do what they uh, said they were going to do. Um, but it's very difficult to reform um, uh, the uh, the UNFCCC, etc. Um, so actually, what do I think? I, I do think there is a serious question that should be asked about whether there should be any more COPs. I do think there's a serious question that should be asked about whether this whole process, we've had 26 iterations now, um, is worth the, the candle. Uh, and I do think that that those nations, and I mentioned some before, which are um, serious about the nature of the crisis, should consider a breakaway strategy, should consider um, uh, grouping together in such a way um, under new uh, auspices, science-led, with sanctions, etc., in a way that shames any nation that won't uh, join them and says, um, the existing process is not fit for purpose. Um, we're forming a new, um, whatever it's going to be called, yes. a new sort of post-UN kind of um, climate serious uh, um, cartel or consortium, um, which are going to seek to um, actually tell the truth and, and start to do enough. Now, that's a kind of very bold idea. A lot of people say it's a wild idea or it has no chance of becoming reality. Look, frankly, at this point, we need some bold thinking. Uh, if it's a wild idea, so be it. You know, we are on a hiding to mass death and devastation. Um, the kinds of uh, climate disasters we've seen this year are just going to carry on getting worse for a very long time uh, to come. Uh, we need to, to really think about how we could possibly do this differently. Yes, yeah, yeah. And worryingly, the next two cops are in Sinai in Egypt and in the Emirates, which doesn't augur well for access. These are likely to be highly securitized affairs. Now, I'd like to get your, your views on adaptation. It's an area you've been working on for some time and your, your new book that you edited with Jem Bendel came out this summer. Yeah, so... Look, I think if the place to start here is um, adaptation was supposed to be a big theme at Glasgow, um, and it wasn't a sufficiently big theme. There's a lot of talk. You can tell the difference, for example. There's a lot of talk about the, the race to zero among businesses. But there's a race to resilience, which is on at the same time, which is supposed to be just as important. It gets a lot less attention. Well, that's got to change because the outcome of Glasgow is that we are um, – set further on our path of a self-imposed climate decline. And one of the very clear implications of that is there is no avoiding loss and damage and there is no avoiding adaptation. We have to try to cope with what is coming. We have to try to adapt hard though it's going to be. We have to try to, to build uh, resilience. And when I say we, this operates at every level. This refers to self-aware nations. It refers to to localities, neighbourhoods. It refers to... to um, uh, people watching this, thinking of themselves as uh, as uh, participants in a family or in a community or, or whatever it is. And we mustn't, we can't expect that governments are going to do enough because they're not doing enough on any front. Uh, so we're going to have to show some leadership here. So there's going to have to be a lot of kind of bottom-up work. So there is a, a, a very clear need for deep adaptation now um, with each passing um week certainly this last passing week when you say uh, deep adaptation, sorry when you say deep adaptation just yeah. to clarify what what you, you you mean by that for for listeners thanks yeah so deep adaptation is readiness for potential societal collapse and it doesn't make any sense now not to engage in such readiness 
we also need transformative uh, adaptation, which is uh, um, attempting to uh, transform um, our systems to make them really genuinely resilient and uh, hopefully to head off, to help head off um, such potential collapse. But, you know, that's no longer fully in our hands. Um, so we need uh, deep adaptation, we need transformative uh, 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 adaptation. Um, whatever incremental and defensive adaptation we do against the the uh, the coming storms, etc., um, needs to be within the context of transformative adaptation, needs to be within the context of system change as much as we are able to co-create that. And as I say, a lot of this is going to have to be led bottom up. A lot of this is going to have to be led by people um, uh, growing food, uh, looking after each other, um, thinking about their communities on a neighbourhood, parish, etc. Uh, level, um, because um, governments are, are off the pace uh, here. And, you know, this is grim. Uh, it's grim having to think about all this, but it's much better uh, to have a bit of grim thinking and then do something about it than it is to uh, end up like a, uh, an ostrich or indeed a dodo. Um, yeah. What's really good about this whole adaptation agenda is that it makes it real to people, it makes it real to us ourselves, it makes it real to other people. If we're adapting, we are inherently acknowledging the reality of the crisis and acknowledging that it is right here, right now, and not putting it off in the way that talk of net zero 2050 or even 2035 or whatever kind of puts it off. Um, also, what's really good about um, going further down the adaptation uh, front is that it fits with what the most vulnerable need. Adaptation is attempting to reduce our vulnerabilities. And of course, the countries which need adaptation the most are the ones that are already being the hardest hit. Arguably, this is one reason why adaptation hasn't actually um, received as much yeah. attention and as much financial support as uh, as it should have done so far, because um, so-called developed countries have not perceived themselves as needing it so much. But, well, A, that's starting to change as we realise that countries like Germany and Australia and Canada can get hit incredibly hard by the uh, actual and coming climate disasters. And B, um, I think that we are hearing more now, um, and we did hear some of it very clearly at this COP, the cries of those nations and peoples which are suffering loss and damage, which badly need help in, uh, in adapting. Um, and I think it's becoming harder to ignore uh, those calls uh, and those cries. So I think adaptation is totally uh, now an idea as time has come uh and uh i would urge um um anyone watching and listening to this to to move more of their um uh, endeavors more of their interest more of their awareness um in that direction uh very interesting and and uh, certainly a topic for another discussion uh mindful of the time here you were involved with xr for several years as a spokesman and i'm just wondering whether you could talk a little bit about activism, popular movements, uh, your views, and what you think needs to happen? So, Fergal, look, um, let me start out by saying that I, I'm sorry, but this is how it is. I'm sorry not to have been more upbeat here. Um, I, the, the, the brutal reality is I think that when one allows oneself to take in the brutal reality of what's happened and not happened at COP, it is hard to go... It's hard to avoid going through a phase of this kind of um, uh, of kind of somberness, near uh, 
despair, of being very downhearted. Um, what I am hoping is that there are enough other people who are going through some of this. Um, and what I do see, for example, on Twitter is a bunch of above new people uh, waking up, people who thought that COP26 was really going to achieve something and have now realised that it's it's mostly for the birds, uh, that expectation. And what is crucial now is to have a much larger rising up. Uh, and I say rising up, this could take various forms. Yeah, Some of it will take the form of... Um, of um, XR type um, um, activism, people being driven to um, to make real sacrifices, etc., um, for the for the common good. You know, good on them, brilliant. Some of it will be among people who are not willing to go quite as far uh, as that, but are nevertheless being activated and and involved, wanting to become an activist. And that's partly where my new moss, excuse me, my new mass moderate flank. Uh, idea comes in that I've been writing a lot about recently, including recently in uh, Perspectiva. Uh, some of it will be people who are moving to try to uh, take care of themselves, build resilience, etc. And that too, I regard as part of the of the uprising, as part of the uh, the new uh, moderate flank, uh, having a more sort of um, sober and realistic um, uh, attitude. To, to what's achievable um, than may have been the case in some parts of the environmental movement uh, in the past. And really, you put all this together, uh, there'll be people who are getting involved, who are wanting to get involved, who will not think of themselves as activists at all. Um, we need to be inclusive of all of this. That's really my key point. Uh, and the, and the, the moderate flank that I'm seeking to build, um, along with others, um, Inclusiveness is is the watchword. Um, even if you are not prepared to get arrested, even if you are not uh, a left winger, even if you are not a green, even if you don't think of yourself as an activist, even if you've never been involved before, none of these must be barriers to entry. On the contrary, we need everybody, and we need a hell of a lot of people to respond to the pain they are feeling post COP, and we need ourselves who are feeling that pain to spread it more widely, if you will, uh, to, to wake up more people who are not yet uh, awakened, who have been um, coddled to sleep by media, scientific, political, etc., complacency. Uh, this is absolutely crucial. This is what will be happening over the coming uh, weeks and months into 2022. Uh, and um, it is that if I have uh, hope in this desperate situation, uh, that is where it resides, that by facing the desperateness of the situation, by uh, mobilising in, in larger numbers in ways that can attract larger numbers, um, that we may be able to get somewhere where we haven't got yet. Well, that's a great vision, Rupert, and I wish you the very best of success with it all. And thank you so much for joining me again today on the Sustainability Agenda. Thanks, Fergal. If you enjoyed today's discussion, we recommend you check out and support the work of Client Earth. Client Earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach, using the law to create powerful change that protects life on Earth.
To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth uses the power of the law to change systems to achieve lasting change in forming, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. You can find out more at clientearth.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.